Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast. Hello. <laughs> that was that was the coldest of the cold opens. We just went right into yeah, it. Yeah, no banter. Let's do it. We um, got to get down there. It yeah, is, it's time. Down and dirty. Look, it, it's we're already almost all the way through the first month of 2020. We've got to talk about 2019 while we still can. Right. And so this is the 2019 show. This is all the tops of all the tops. And so we got our tops tens and tops other categories and doing all those things. I'm still Dustin. I'm still Dalton. I'm Arthur. And we're going to do this thing. Uh, ordinarily, we'll do an analysis of a movie, but today, not that. We're just going to... No. Very, very... It's a listicle episode. Yeah. Look. Clickbait. You know you like it. You know you want to know what we liked it in 2019 and so don't, don't and lie you know you want to tell us where we were wrong <sighs> and where we were right exactly and you can do that on twitter and at good underscore trash oh that's absolutely right arthur they can also send the long form feedback to good trash at gmail.com if they're so inclined we are cleaning house at the top of the that's show right. so you, we can get into this if you really have a big feeling about it you can leave a review on itunes yeah, uh, true true and we'll try to read that if we pay attention enough to see it yeah we check every once in a while that's okay so thanks for being, you know, I'm vigilant. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. that. Ever vigilant. So we're going to start off with the, our, our our five through ten, or six through or or ten through six, ten through six. Yeah, ten through Fire six. Fire them off real quick. And so uh, I guess we're just going to go in around. You're just going to go ten through six and go. Is that what's going to happen? Let's do it. Let's okay. do it quick. Okay, Arthur, ten through six, go. Number ten, last black man in San Francisco. Boom. Number nine, Ad Astra. Number eight, The Lighthouse. Number seven, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Number six. Softer applause. <laughs> Uncut gems. Very good, very good. Um, I like all the things. Once upon a time was going to be a lot higher, so no. back up off me. All right, sorry, buddy. All right, well, Dalton, what's your um, 10 through 6? Uh, okay. Ugh. The Nightingale. We don't need to talk anymore about it. I don't want to talk anymore about it. There's a whole episode of me trying not to cry while we talk about it. Number nine, The Art of Self-Defense. It's really good. It maybe is 10 years too late, but we definitely needed this as an antidote to Fight Club. Uh, number eight. Uh, the beach bum. Oh boy, do I like the beach bum a lot. I want to go watch it right now. Did it's you watch so the fun. interview I sent you? Hell yeah, I watched the interview it's you adorable. sent me. It's so cute. I love it. Go watch. The, I look. I hate late night talk shows so much, but you got to go see Snoop Dogg and Will, Matthew McConaughey hanging out on Jimmy Kimmel's couch. I'm all funny. about that. Uh, number seven. I forgot how to count for a second. Booksmart. Really great directorial great. debut. I've loved Caitlin Deaver since uh, she first showed up on Justified. I love B.B. Feldstein. Uh, B.B., not B.B. Uh, they're just so good together. They're so fun. I hope both of these actresses have the best careers that anybody could ever ask for. They kick a lot of ass. They're very funny. Olivia Wilde made a hell of a first movie. Uh, it sucks that more people didn't see it, uh, but I think it's going to live forever uh, as a cult film. It's very, very good. Finally, The Lighthouse. It's weird as shit. I want to go watch it again right now. Dustin, very let cool. Us know. Very cool. All right. Well, number ten is an elephant sitting still. It is a uh, Bo Hughes uh, debut and last film because he committed suicide directly following the film. It's deeply sad, intertwined stories kind of movie. And I, I, I can't say. Uh, Again, in sort of the haste of this particular section, I, w- I want to say too much about it, but it is that slow cinema kind of thing. Mm. And so I've talked about Uncle, Uncle Boomy, who can recall his past lives before. It's of that, but it's more like Bellatar's The Turin Horse. And so okay. a, an Asian-Chinese version of that and just a slow meditation on the lives of several different human beings and how they intersect with – Something was that title one more time, and where can listeners find it? Sitting still, it's on Criterion currently, and so that's that, and Canopy probably as well. Yeah, where it can be found. Uh, Number nine is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, It's fine. Uh, Number. Eight. Eight is High Life um, by Claire Denis, um, starring uh, R. Pat, and he's great in that uh, number, whatever next, seven. 
I see. I'm, I'm see. I the, got messed the, up the too. Counting's hard. The pressure. Here, the I'll pressure. Throw, I'll say the number. You Ti- keep going. Tigers are not afraid. Uh, oh, I've heard great, that's good. Great little ghost story in the in the vein of Guillermo del Toro from Mexico, and I uh, love it very very much. And so that was number seven, right? That was number seven. Number six. Number six is the last one I say, and it's Parasite. And it's because I like some other movies better. Parasite's very very good, but it didn't stick with me in the ways that the movies that I'm going to list in my top five did. And so I like it a lot. Don't get me wrong, but it didn't crack the five. It was right up the right sure. on the edge. On the cusp at number six. We would expect nothing less from you uh, than uh, swaying from the status quo. Nothing less. Uh, sorry. We appreciate that about you. Well, now we're going to take it. We're going to slow things down a little bit. Please. Hey, get comfortable. You. Hey, baby. Hey, kick off those shoes. Find a beanbag. Hang out. Uh, now we're just going to kind of do some some fun categories. Talk about films that didn't make our top ten lists, or maybe there's some overlap. But these are just some categories. That uh, we we've chopped up over the last couple of years of recapping uh, films or years of films uh, to just give a little texture uh, to this conversation. So we're going to start with best story concept. Uh, just you know, look, we like a high concept. We like a good log line. Sell us your movie in an elevator. Um, so that's this this category. Arthur, what's uh, one of your favorite story concepts? I'm going to go with Robert Eggers' The Lighthouse because it's about wikis. In a lighthouse. <laughs> yeah. Who'd have thunk? Yeah, that's all it's about. And it's, it's crazy it's idea. Dialogue pulled from journals and letters and that whole thing that Eggers does so well. Um, and, and being able to turn that into this metaphor and allegory of madness and weird mysticism about the water and Poseidon and all that fun stuff. It's a trip. Uh, it is It is all all kinds of looking at masculinity and sexuality and and everything that entails uh, when you put two guys in a small room together uh, for an extended period of time in a black and white setting. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's a great movie. And, um, you know, I, I think The Witch is very, a little more fundamental. It's, you know, th- that's a pretty straightforward kind of idea that we've seen before. But the idea of two wikis is just not something, you know, we get very often. And so for him to play in that arena so well and, and to really do something kind of out of the ordinary with this unorthodox setup, I think, is, is really fascinating. Mm. And still thematically of a piece with the witch in some interesting yes. ways. Oh, yeah, yeah, and the definitely. ways that it tries to unpack gender. Yeah, yeah, definitely. By the beard of Poseidon, I like that pitch. Um, you don't like me cooking? <laughs> but you like me lobster. <laughs> what? What? Oh, I love what? this movie so much. Oh, so good. So what is your favorite concept, Dalton? I want to give a little honorable mention love to Rocket Man. Somebody finally bothered to learn a lesson from the Dewey Cox story and uh, actually did a biopic differently. How'd they do it? They made a surrealist musical Fantasia uh, and it's got uh, sweet baby Taron Egerton, who I've liked for a long time, really just swinging for the fences. Uh, I mean, he's great as Sir Elton in this. He's absolutely astonishing. Um, it's great. It's fun. But that's not my actual pick. My actual pick is The Farewell, uh, Lulu Wang's incredible film yeah. that just very narrowly got yeah, edged yeah. out of my top ten. Uh, what's the concept, story concept for this? Well, the story concept for this is yet another This American Life uh, movie. Uh, they've done that a couple of times. It really worked this time, though, because the story is so outside of the Western experience, uh, and, and that's very fundamentally what it's about. It's about Lulu Wang uh, through this character that she's written, played by Aquafina. Aquafina nearly won my best performance. She's very she's good. Great. She's very good in it. Uh, but you know, it is trying to unpack that when you get to go back to where your family is from and see how different your family has become in a generation and just like the way you look at the world, the way you process it is 
is a fundamentally interesting thing, right? I mean, that's, you know, uh, all, the three of us are, uh, you know, we're white dudes stranded in the middle of this country, so our people have been, you know, uh, bumbling ass backwards through this uh, fine land for a while. Uh, so we've lost those roots. We don't remember the stuff that we're supposed to remember because uh, nobody had money to keep track. Uh, and so getting to see that story uh, with the recency is just... I mean, it connects, and I think it's easy for people to write this off and say, well, you know, I don't, I don't know any Asian people, I shouldn't see this. But, all right, first of all, don't be stupid. But second of all, even if that is how you feel, you're wrong, man. You're going to get something out of this, because everybody loves their grandma. Everybody loves their grandma! And this is, if nothing else, a movie about loving your grandparents uh, and trying to understand your grandparents and, and realizing how that can help you understand your parents a little bit better. Um, yeah, I just like everything about this movie and uh, wanted to make sure we gave it some love because it, it very nearly got edged out of my top ten. Very cool, very cool. I like that pick a lot. So um, my first pick for um, best concept, yeah, first pick, I guess just the pick for yeah. best concept, is, um, you know what's really scary? Hmm. White people. Midsummer yeah. is... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, baby. Uh, yeah. Midsummer is a great concept. Let's let's make a movie about scary, scary white well, people in the broad daylight. This is what we're talking about, right? I'm very glad we've lost touch with our European roots because it turns out they're freaky. Yeah, crazy, crazy. They're freaky. What it, what it turns out is, as while most of the civilized world was inventing, you know, mathematics, algebra, poetry, and philosophy, the people from which we are descended were swinging through the trees and offering human sacrifices, just doing mushrooms and jumping off of cliffs. Uh, you know, like like you wild do. Wild and out. Mm-hmm. Wild and out. But it is an insane concept. Never and... forget that Christmas trees come from basically a Viking burning man. Yes, and so uh, yeah, I just I, I love the idea. And Midsummer is also an, a very very good movie as well. But um, it didn't make my top uh, five, obviously. Um, that's why I'm saying it here. But I love it as an idea, and I love it as a concept. Just like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to make a movie. Uh, we're going to do Wicker Man, but we're going to do it scarier and more daylight. And we're really going to get into like the pagan mythology that informs all that madness. We might talk about Midsommar more later. So, yeah, I like Midsommar a lot. Viking Burning Man is the spinoff festival I'm here for. It, man, yeah. Uh, Viking Burning Man was the name of the uh, industrial band I tried to start. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they could do this bit for a while. All right, moving on to our next category, which is our favorite performance of the year. So, best actor. Um, we do that in the gender neutral, and so um, we're, I'm curious to hear uh, who your favorite performer was this year. What do you say, Arthur? I'm going to go with Pakali uh, Ganambar from uh, The Nightingale. He's uh, so good. Billy, He's very good. Uh, the tracker, um, who plays the lead male role in that film. Um, just turns into a phenomenal uh, character performance. The only reason um, he's not my pick is because I saw you picked him, and yeah. I want to spread the love out. Yeah, he's yeah. amazing. He's just uh, the heart and soul and anchor of that movie, um, and, and a movie that is already so dynamic and so powerful and gut-wrenching, and he brings an extra layer to every element of that. Uh, it's just a, a, a dynamite performance, and, and I really hope he gets to do some, some more work um, outside of his, his home country because he's he's got a gift uh, that could elevate a lot of movies uh, if, if he gets in contact with the right people. He is very solid. I think about him, um, and I forget the actress and her character's name, but I think of the two of them singing uh, to each other at the fire, like, 
all the time since yeah. we watched that movie, guys. Yeah, yeah, in Gaelic and in also whatever Aborigine. Yeah, you know. uh, yeah. oh, it's Tasmanian Aboriginal language, yeah. and yeah. it's I one can't... of the first times it's ever been on film. But I can't remember yeah, what it's, it's called. Great. It's really yeah. cool. But yeah, love love that scene. Great pick, Arthur. Very cool. Very cool. Who is your favorite performer of the year? I'm gonna cheat real quick, but I nope. promise I'll be brief. It's just Shocker. it's every every category. I know. Do it. Well, look, there are seven I want to mention right now. There are two actresses this year that did two performances each that are just earth-shatteringly good, and that's Lupita Nyong'o in Us, uh, her double role there, and Florence Pugh in Little Women and Midsommar. And Little Women, she effectively plays a preteen, and you believe it. Uh, people are out here complaining about, eh, shut up, Martin Scorsese, or uh, Robert De Niro played a 30-year-old this year. Uh, I believe Florence Pugh's energy is like a 12-year-old, totally checks out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then watching uh, her character evolve again. I'm, I don't. I'm not. I don't have a familiarity with Little Women. Uh, unfortunately, this was my first exposure to it. And watching uh, her her performances, Joe. Nope. Joe's Joe the, Joe's the, the lead. Amy. Amy thank Amy. you. Oh my god. Uh, her Amy. performances, Amy, is so good. And just like watching this character uh, evolve throughout the course of the film is really great. And then of course in Midsummer, Florence Pugh gives an all time great horror movie performance. And that's why. I want to mention her and Lupita because both of them this year gave all-time great horror movie performances. They're just lights out incredible. Uh, Remind me the title of the Victorian film, Florence Pugh. Lady Macbeth. Lady Macbeth that she was in last year. What I've learned from Florence Pugh's performances is you don't mess with Florence Pugh. She's incredible. She's so good. And she will kill you. Everything she's in, she's just the best thing about it. It just And Lupita Nyong'o, the same way. She Mm -hmm. had to play this friggin' alien in these Star Wars movies, and every scene that she gets in those three (laughs) films is pretty damn captivating. And in the meantime, she managed to duck out, make little monsters, which is just okay, but she's the portrait of a kindergarten teacher in. And then she makes us with Jordan Peele, and holy crap, is it horrifying and cool and interesting and scary and... Damn, great performances this year. Dustin, what's your picks, bud? Uh, Willem Dafoe in The Lighthouse. Yeah, uh, yeah, it is. I mean, Good pick. I, he's just incredible. I mean, the way in which he per- per- portrays his insanity, the way in which he gaslights, he's, maybe, he question mark. fully let off the chain for his monologues. And, and, and the way in which he's able to deliver these monologues in states of inebriation or lack of inebriation or states of having dirt thrown in his face and throws down this curse of Prometheus it's insane what he's able to do. And so, yeah, I just, I, Willem Dafoe is a great actor and a treasure, and uh, he is doing good work in the lighthouse. The way he modulates back and forth between, like, meek and, like, an old meek man yeah. and this, like, terrifying ancient god is. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the Captain Ahab in the middle. Yeah. It's it's weird watching that because it's like, Robert Pattinson's doing a great job. Mm-hmm. But it's like, oh, this is Robert Pattinson playing Wiki. And then you're like, where did they find an actual Wiki? <laughs> Right, a real one. Role. Yeah, where, where did they where find, did they this, find man? this guy? Yeah. What lighthouse what was he living time in? Time machine? Did they invent? <laughs> yeah, and he's Will- on another level. Willem Dafoe's face is like etched into all of our frontal lobes. Yes. Like we'll probably see Willem Dafoe's face alongside some of our loved ones when, when we, we die. die. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm right there with you, Arthur. I'm just well, like, you know who's this ship, guy? You yeah. know that ship tattoo he has on his chest? I have Willem Dafoe's face tattooed <laughs> on my chest. That's so interesting. I have the lighthouse tattooed on my chest. <laughs> The movie, just scene by scene. Yeah, the whole thing. Just the whole thing. Frame by the frame. The storyboards are mm. just covering the body. Red, red dragon thing happening. Yeah, but it's just, just a lot body. of Robert Pattinson jerking off. <laughs> <laughs> With a bar mermaid So, Oh my god, what a, a weird... A lot of shark genitalia mermaids. God, it's... I love that weird movie. Hey, yeah. it's time for Hidden Gems before we keep talking about uh, all this gross stuff that's in the lighthouse. Okay, so Hidden Gems, um, we're going to you first, Arthur. What is your favorite Hidden Gems? You film off the beaten path. 
I am going to go with the underseen flop, Dr. Sleep, uh, from Mike Flanagan, who we all love and appreciate so dearly here at the genre cast. Um, Doc, Flanagan had an unenviable task uh, in adapting Dr. Sleep because, one, it's a sequel to The Shining, uh, which already, as a book and movie, has all sorts of reputations and opinions and weird gatekeepy stuff uh, involved with it. And to try to retcon that, plus adapt this work, plus do the the Flanagan thing that he does, uh, I, I think it is a weird road to travel. But he was able to manage it very well and create a uh, a sequel that works both with the movie and the book, as well as adapting the book and bringing that House on Haunted Hill element of family tragedy and pain. And letting that drive a narrative and, and be the heart of the film. Um, and because Hugh McGregor is Dan Torrance, uh, grown up, becoming a shadow of Jack in a lot of ways, um, is, is just a, a captivating performance, I think, for McGregor. Uh, but Flanagan does a really good job of looking at the sins of the father and, and how that's passed down, even when we don't want it to be. And... and reconciling that as an adult and working through those issues uh, and, and then having the 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 protege of, of Abra and, and learning to be that un, unwilling mentor for her um, is just, it's just great I think I, I think it is just a wonderful adaptation but I think it's just a wonderful horror movie and, and I think people slept on it and I think Warner Brothers really Dropped the ball by dropping it after Halloween. Um, yeah, weird call that. Putting it in November was a weird move. Bad Thanksgiving release. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it's early in November, but still. Yeah, still. It, it should have been a month earlier. Yeah, I'm, I'm still bummed I missed it. I'm very much looking forward to the Same. director's cut that's about to yeah. hit. That's kind of the only reason I'm not bummed I missed it. It's like, oh, I'll just skip to the director's well, cut. Well, that I've been meaning to read the book. Yeah. Do I need to read the book? I, I to mean, what extent? You. Does it, does it I enhance mean, the, the experience, or does it... It, it probably it, would. He, he makes some changes that I think work really well. Uh, um, but I think, I mean, it works well enough as a sequel to Kubrick Shining that if you don't read the book, I think you'd be okay still. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the homage and the love that he has for King and The Shining is is on display throughout, and I think it's just a great movie. Um, so, yeah, go see Dr. Sleep if you haven't yet. Nice. What is your um, hidden gem? My hidden gem is the standoff at Sparrow Creek, the directorial debut of Henry Dunham, um, or the featured directorial debut, I should say. He's got a short from 2014 that he did. But uh, this movie's on Hulu right now. It played festivals. It didn't really get a big release. Uh, I'll just read the synopsis for you real quick because it's going to be more interesting than me trying to like tell you what this movie's about. Uh, after a mass shooting and a police funeral, reclusive ex-cop Gannon, played by James Badgedale, who's so good in this movie, finds himself unwittingly forced out of retirement when he realizes that the killer belongs to the same militia he joined after quitting the force. Understanding that the shooting could set off a chain reaction of copycat violence across the country, Gannon quarantines his fellow militiamen in the remote lumber mill they call their headquarters. There, he sets about a series of grueling interrogations intent on ferreting out the killer and turning him over to the authorities to prevent further bloodshed. Uh, so that's the, you know, the, the long and the short of the, the plot synopsis of this movie. But this is just stacked to the gills with, hey, I know that guy, actors. Uh, other than James Badgedale, who is the lead here and I think is really great. You got Patrick Fleischler, who will always be the guy who saw the thing behind the diner. Uh, and he's really good, good here. 
Uh, I've also got Brian Garrity uh, doing some some good work. That's uh, Mulholland Drive, dear listener, if you didn't quite know. Thank you, Dustin. Uh, I'm not going to list the whole cast, but it's a lot of like, oh, I've seen this guy in like four things, and I've never really paid attention to him, and it's just full of that. Uh, we talked on our Patreon content. Um, hey, that's a, you want to give us some money? You can go listen to that. Uh, where we, we did our honorable mentions. Dustin talked uh, about Joker as a film about white male rage, and we kind of talked about that being a, a common theme in, in this year in cinema. And the standoff at Sparrow Creek engages with that in really interesting ways because interesting. it reminds you that, yeah, those dudes exist, exist and uh, some of them have militias together, and they're pretty well organized. Um, I don't love the ending of this film, um, mostly because it the film is almost forced by its budgetary constraints to find the cleanest solution to the story. Uh, and I wonder how the scope could have been expanded with more money. Uh, that said, within the, the limitations that they have, they, this film really does fire in all cylinders. It looks like uh, they have more money than they do, uh, and every dollar that they had is on screen. Uh, it's mostly in a lumber warehouse. Like uh, the synopsis said, it is a pretty... Uh, confidently confined one location story uh, but the ways in which this lumber miller shot really give it a lot of visual depth that uh, that's the kind of thing that usually hamstrings a sort of bottle film the single location thriller uh, is the sense of the cheapness um, or not even the cheapness just the story arbitrarily confining your cast sometimes but making that one location visually dynamic is, is a big pitfall for these kind of movies. Uh, and I think the film does a great job here. Uh, that aside, it's just full of great uh, back and forth uh, dialogue exchanges. It's a lot of two-hander scenes uh, where characters are just reading each other the riot act uh, in the most uh, psychologically coy ways. They're, they're really trying to get a rise out of each other and probe without revealing too much of their own hand. Uh, again, you've got a bunch of dudes who are interested in shooting guns together on the weekend in an organized, potentially scary fashion. Uh, obviously, none of them are quite emotionally honest with each other. So watching that unspool over the course of this film is really interesting. Uh, again, I hope you've, I've sold you on it. Uh, it's scary. Uh, I'm not going to lie. Watching this film uh, in the world that we live in is a little too real. Um, so bear that in mind going in, but I, I like this movie a lot and it's kind of off the beaten path. So that's my hidden gem pick. What do you got there, Dustin? My hidden gem, um, is a movie that Arthur has a lot of love for as well. What? It was on, mm. it's available currently on Hulu and Amazon prime if memory serves. And it is Julia Hart's fast color. Oh um, yeah, man. I tell you what. So it is a lot a, of people love this yeah. movie. Okay. It's a superhero thing, but it's not a superhero thing because it's a mother and daughter and grandmother story. It's a story about addiction. Also, David Strathairn from Good Night and Good Luck yeah, is also is. in it, and mm, uh, and not doing a whole lot, but uh, still, Google Buffers is in this too, right? Uh, yes. yes, yeah, I like her a lot. And uh, man, I tell you what, it's just an excellent sort of meditation on these sort of familial issues and how sometimes you need to go back home mm. and what that means, and it all is sort of framed within the narrative of this this person with the superpower, this family that sort of has a set of superpowers and trying to figure out their powers and what's going on with it, but really wrestling with much, much deeper, more familial kind of issues. And it's a deeply moving, deeply uh, sweet, uh, deeply sad at moments yeah. movie. And also this, there, there's a power move at the end where a strong black woman just puts it on all of these white dudes 
And if that's not enough to sell you on this movie, I don't, I don't know, I don't know why we're talking. Love it because man, it is Love great. It. So, it sounds cool. Fast Color is uh, my hidden gem of 2019 yes. for sure. So moving on to our next category, guys. Um, so we got a hidden gem, but also sometimes there are big disappointments. Yeah, sometimes you get sad. Sometimes movies aren't as good as you want. Sometimes them to be. movies just let you down a little bit, and you you had some hype maybe, and you know we have a sort of didn't get the hype category later, um, and we'll say shocking things. I'm pretty sure uh, during that section. But this is a movie that you know was built up, but you were just like, nah, let me down. So what was your uh, biggest disappointment, Arthur? It Chapter Two. Whoa, really? So going back to Stephen King here, um, it was a movie that. I, I had a lot of love for the first part. I, I really dig that first movie. Yeah, uh, you and I uh, both really. Yeah. Dustin, did you see Chapter I did. One? Yeah, Chapter he, One. He I liked really, it a lot. He really I, enjoyed it too. I think it came close. It was like that a, Anthrax Needle Drop guys is yeah. one of the greatest moments in cinema. I was. Yeah. I don't think it was in all of our top tens that year, but I feel like it was in all of our Pretty top twenties. Touted, yeah, yeah. I know we all liked it. I um, forgot you liked it too, Dustin. And I think it's just a great. You know, it's a great coming of age story with the killer clown in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Chapter Two just. It has a lot of structural issues that it can't get past. It's got this sort of repetitive beat uh, nature that outlines it. I also don't think uh, they think too highly of the audience or their fan base because mm-hmm. it feels like they put in way too much to they, you know, they show t- they they tell too much rather than showing it. But they also rely really heavily on flashbacks and and the kids um, who are great. The, the kids are great. But it feels like they rely way too much on those flashbacks and, and try to reestablish an emotional connection uh, that's already there if, if you've seen the first movie. And so, you know, I, I think the adults for the most part are good. Uh, Hater's great. McAvoy's great. Chastain's great. Um, but it just never really But they're gels. the only three that really get anything to yeah. do, right? Yeah. yeah. Now, I haven't seen Chapter 2. I haven't but, either, yeah. But I will say this much about it because I love this novel. And uh, the problem that I've always had with adaptations, and I realize novels and movies are different kinds of media, and there are different ways to yeah. do things, and you sometimes need to break apart the structure. However, I don't think it is a movie you're required to do that. I think you can tell the story of it as though it is in the contemporary moment in 1985 for the novel, but contemporary moment for now, and that's fine. Uh, the, the time shift, I don't have a problem with at all. But tell it as though these adults – are remembering their childhood and bringing them together in the same sort of story structure. You think that cutting back and forth thing is integral? I I think it's absolutely integral to the way the story, because it is about memory. It's about nostalgia. From a production standpoint, I totally get it. Like, it makes sense. They had to... Find a way to break well, it. They had into to see movies. how much. Mo- well, and they had to see how much money they could make to see what kind of stars they could attract. Right, and, I, and that's what you know. Chapter two does that. It, it is about them coming back together and then having those flashbacks and remembering their youth. But we already saw the whole movie. Yeah, we don't need to see it again. Exactly. But yeah, that's the the issue I think with the movie. And when I saw chapter one, the first thing I thought was, you just took out the most interesting thing about the whole thing. I mean, you did. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think the kid's part, the kid's story is what you're staying in and you keep reading for. But the way you keep moving it forward is by having these adults and the simultaneity of the, the, the journey down into the dungeon is, yeah. is, is, I think, crucial. Yeah, telling the story about repressed trauma uh, in which you've already revealed all the repressed trauma does certainly... Yeah, it makes sense, Arthur. Yeah. I get why yeah. that didn't work. So, so I'm with you, brother. There we go. All right, moving right along. Hey, should I should I catch up with it at some point though? That, I, I I you know I, I think everybody should watch the movie because it's make almost like opinions. three hours long. Uh, yeah, I, I I'm mean, such a big fan. I know I'm gonna. It's see on it. home video. Yeah, go ahead and check it out. Right? Okay, it's still worth setting aside the time for. Go for it. All right. What's your biggest disappointment, Dalton? <sighs> 
look, Star Wars is the easy answer, right? Well, that's my answer. But I had, okay. I, I'll give it away. Star Wars let me down, so. And it's the easy answer for me, but I, if truth is told, I kind of had a feeling I was not going to have a fun time with this movie. So I'm going to go with the one that's a little bit harder for me to say, uh, and, and that's Black Christmas. I was really excited for this movie. A big okay. part of that is I'm a huge April Wolf fan, big time. Uh, Sophia Tikal, uh, who is the director here, um, I'm not super familiar with her work, but I I, I really like uh, April Wolf, and I was just really really excited about this movie. And it's not that it's terrible. Um, I I think it got kind of dragged over the coals a little bit um, based on its uh, Rotten Tomato score. I haven't actually seen who went to bat for it and what they had to say about it. Uh, but, uh, you know, this movie didn't really do any kind of business, didn't really get any kind of critical love. Um, and, and I get it. I, I There's a lot wrong with this. Uh, but I, I'm a fan of it overall, honestly. Uh, but it just, there's so much that almost is really incredible and compelling about it. But overall, it's just kind of a mess. I, I, I appreciate the aggressiveness with which this film states its politics and the fact that it wastes zero time to do so. Uh, it states very quickly, very upfront, this is what this movie's about. You're, if you're not on board, now's your chance to get off. Uh, and I was on board. Unfortunately, though, the, the way in which events unfold in the second and third acts just doesn't really hold together. And, and some of the suspense sequences in this film are, are really well-crafted and well-constructed. Uh, again, I'm, I'm going to bat for a little bit because I don't want to chase you away, listener. If you're ever in the mood for a, a holiday-themed horror film, I think there's some merit here. Uh, and again, I think the story they're trying to tell about sexual violence on college campuses is, uh, you know, one worth telling. And I think one that works as a, a, a way to do a riff on a Black Christmas remake. Um, I think that's always been the implied subtext of this story, uh, really, of, of most slasher films. Um, and making that text, that subtext, just the literal text, is a, is a good, interesting and compelling idea. This film just doesn't click together, uh, unfortunately, which is a bummer because I think everybody uh, is is game. Everybody showed up to do their job and did a good job. It's just something's off, uh, and, and I, you know, you could probably watch it five times, write a paper about it, and you still wouldn't uh, maybe fully be able to grasp exactly what's off. And I, I think that's because so much of it's not off. I think so much of it is working, um, but but the elements that hold it back are. Are, are too immeasurable, I guess. And, and again, I'm, I'm struggling to be articulate because because it is such a big disappointment. I was very, very pumped about this movie. Um, and uh, when it uh, didn't quite live up to, to my hopes, uh, it really it really took the wind out of my sails a little bit. I was very excited for everybody involved in this movie to make this movie. And, uh, you know, look, it doesn't always work out. Making movies is real damn hard. Uh, what are you going to do? Uh, Dustin, let's talk about that, that War in the Stars, huh? Yeah, I mean, this this movie was a bit of a letdown insofar as uh, a movie that seeks to do fan service fails to do fan service. And I, I'm mostly talking about Finn and Poe Dameron. I, you know, uh, Finn, yeah, Poe Dameron, yeah. I, yeah, you got the name right. It's like the, the Star Wars names are you sometimes did it, buddy. hard. Obi-Wan can no fart, um, whatever their names are. But, it's fun to get the names wrong on purpose. But, I, uh, yeah, I was actually trying, and that was sad. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, I mean, but here's Wait. the thing. Do you think, think he means, means old, old Ben Nobottoms? Guys. <laughs> <laughs> <Nice>. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you, Arthur. That's wow. Well done. Ooh, ancient, ancient yeah, callbacks. It's been a long time. We haven't got one of those in a while. Yeah, what a, what a continue. Uh, okay, so, I mean, again, it, it is, it just, 
I don't feel like it wrapped up the storylines very well. And that is the thing that I think that the original trilogy and even the 90s to 2000s trilogy did a fairly good job. Like you knew where things were going and where everyone ended up in a way that was pretty satisfying. Um, now, of course, they were a prequel trilogy, so you sort of knew where things were going to end up anyway. But that being said, it really sort of did tie those lines in a way that was pretty satisfying. And I did find it generally dissatisfying. And, and here's the thing, though, about not liking Star Wars as a Gen Xer and uh, whatnot, is that people have got to realize, and I've had a conversation with a, I guess a, the kid would be a millennial at this point. He's in his mid-20s or early 20s. Um, and, yeah, that's too old for Zoomer. Uh, yeah, he's, he's, stuck, he's stuck with a, us, yeah. He's like 22 or something like that. Oh, yeah. Oh, he's he's like you. He's he, You're he's a Gen cusping. X millennial cusper. He's a millennial Zoomer cusper, unfortunately. And he was just talking about how much he didn't like the last three movies and how much he loved the 99 through 2004 or whatever series of movies because that was his nine-year-old child. Yep, there you go. And and what I told him is what I've been telling myself for the last 20 years is that that's when those movies were for you. And that's the thing about Star Wars is Star Wars, they're children's films. They're just adventure movies. And I watched the um, the latest uh, installment, and I was, you know, it was fine. And I thought, you know, this is a big, fun, dumb kids adventure movie. You know, we've got to we've got to find a secret. And we've got to go find the thing. We got to travel this planet. And we got to travel this planet. And there's going to be problems on the planets. And we got to figure out how to do this. And there'll be a big star fight in the sky. And there'll be a big, you know, lightsaber fight and all that kind of stuff working itself out. And you know, some big reveals here and there. But you know, expanding on the mythology in ways that you know you can say, oh, and someday I too will take up the lightsaber and I will be one of the true Jedi. It does all that kind of stuff that a ten year old needs. That that is good for a ten year old. And so I'm not mad about that. I want yeah. to be very, very clear. Sure. Because I want to make sure that everyone understands that I'm I'm not I'm not this one of these Xers that has sort of invested the entire Star Wars trilogy with this sort of meaning and significance. Y- and you're not a comic book guy. You, you, yeah. You're not a Simpsons character. It, it, yeah. It, it yeah. doesn't. It doesn't have a, the, the 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 whole series does not have a philosophical acumen. It doesn't have a worldview. It doesn't. I mean, it does express various and sometimes contradictory ideologies. But that being said, it's not really trying to do something. This is not Godard, and so and I, and I do feel like sometimes Xers treat this I think there's series. plenty of people uh, in my generation that are that way. I mean, I'm look, I this is part of my big disappointment for it is I will go to bat and say, sure that they're contradictory a lot of the time, but I think all of the eight other films, even the 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 bad ones, all have something interesting to say about uh our society, all our regular mm-hmm. human lives, whether it's familial trauma, whether it's cycles of uh authoritarian regimes i i think all eight other films have something interesting to say and a nine has nothing interesting to say about any of those cycles with some mild exceptions about you know breaking where you come from familial right. speaking i think there's some 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 interesting stuff there but that's why uh, that, my disappointment comes from the places where those other eight children's films are kind of interesting in the margins. I, well, I, I, maybe maybe you're being more generous to them. I am I being am. a little generous, and, and so, but for me, the the disappointment is. I wanted to see more of what's going to happen to Finn. I actually wanted to see more Finn in that movie. I wanted to see more Poe in that movie. I wanted something much more satisfying. And the ways in which I I, I think the uh, bringing back um, Han Solo was cool. That was fine, and I was all about that. And I guess that's kind of a spoiler, but it's already made like a billion dollars. If you haven't seen it, you don't give a shit about it. And so I I I was fine with that, and uh, the ways in which some of those pieces worked. But for the most, and again, the Kylo Ren and Ray story was 
just poorly written. Oof. I just did. I just didn't like that. You know, from like a screenwriting standpoint, like just not a not a good conclusion. And so, um, I mean, they could get to the same place, but if they'd yeah. gotten there in slightly different ways. And I'm not mad about Palpatine clones. I don't care about that. That's fine. I mean, it's retcon, and that's what you expect from this kind of stuff. So that that doesn't that doesn't irritate me. But I just I really expected you know sort of Looney Tunes kind of stuff like Palpatine clones. Fine, whatever. But I expected something at least um, narratively satisfying regarding the characters and giving my giving me some sort of sense of finalization um, that was much more significant than what it did. And to, really, for that, it was a real letdown for me and for my twelve year old boy. Yeah, I'm. Sh- Whoa, dude, he was bummed out too. He's like, man, that was like, that was just all right. Look, I, I, I was gonna be fine if it wasn't great, uh, but I was expecting Return of the Jedi, not Attack of the Clones, in terms of like the barometer for quality, mm-hmm. uh, I guess. And that, that was for me the big bummer. That's, yeah, when a twelve year old doesn't come out of it super pumped, that's oof. yeah, it was a letdown. So I mean, again, easy to dunk on, and I, I try not to take the easy points here. Yeah, you know, I think you did a good job of not taking it to task. You know, hey. I'll tell you what, though. like that Babu Frick, huh? Oh, yeah. Hey, it's me, Babu! It's a great character. <laughs> nice. Too bad they uh, use that character to just kind of like away a planet genocide, but oh well. Uh, you know. Um... Do what you gotta do sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, moving right along to our next category. Let's get excited we, again. Uh, let's t- well, let's talk about not getting the hype. So oh, we're still is, bummed out, that's so right. So this is a movie everybody loved, and you're like, hmm. Well, not so much. What do you say to that, Arthur? Why did you not get the hype about this year? This is a movie I actually enjoyed watching, um, but I don't understand the hype in its awards uh, move, and that is uh, Fernando Mireya's The Two Popes, uh, which is just Jonathan Price and Anthony Hopkins talking to each other. Yeah, a lot of love for The Two Popes going around. I mean, I'm there for that, but yeah, I'm with you. Look, my one of my favorite genres is just two really good actors talking to each other for a long time sure. and hamming it up. And there is a scene where Anthony Hopkins goes to town on some pizza. Uh, and it's the most adorable thing ever. And I want to see a food show with him and Jonathan Price just going across the world eating food. You've already seen it. It's, it's called Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Fava beans and a nice candy. I want that. <laughs> yes. Hannibal Lecter Pope uh, is... Um, but The Two Popes, I, I think it's a solid movie. But I, I am just... It kind of came out of nowhere with the Golden Globes nomination, and that kind of seems like a Globes move. But then, like, it's just been in the conversation of all the award shows, the SAG, the the BAFTAs, the the Oscars. And it, I, I mean, this is a movie maybe five people saw. I mean, this is straight to Netflix. It was seen at festivals. So, like, nobody's seeing this movie. And it's just so bizarre that, A, Netflix is getting behind it in this way, but that it's just gotten such esteem over better movies. Um, it's weird to watch the Guild Awards uh, dance to the tune of the Golden Globes because all of the Guild members know that the Golden Globes are a crock of shit. And yeah. it's so weird to watch them almost like follow the, the cues. Yeah. yeah, it's so strange to me that the, the Golden Globes uh, statistically are a predictor for some of the other awards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah just for sure. Like, there's like this subconscious uh, voodoo. Yeah. <laughs> that the Hollywood Foreign Press is able to do to Work. all of these yeah. ostensibly like talented people, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. It's very confusing. It's just me. I mean, I, I watched The Two Popes when I saw it was nominated, and I, I was pretty intrigued by it. I think it's an interesting enough story, but I don't, that's definitely, like you said about Joker, it's not in, you know, an Oscar candidate. I mean, it's okay. Mm-hmm. 
I probably would have been annoyed if I'd paid full price for it at a theater, but, you know, I don't know. Fair enough, fair enough. Well, thank you for that. What did you not get the hype about, Dalton? Well, we've already talked about it a little bit, and it's uh, Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. Um, Which I did not see, because I was not being sucked into the hype. Well, and again, the hype on this one is soft, and I don't I don't hate this movie. Uh, this is not a film that I'm like, I'm going to run out and fight anybody about. Like, I think the last hour of it's really good, and I think parts of the first two hours are pretty good. It's just too much. It's too long. And I'm not convinced that any of the performances are that good. Uh, I think some of them are okay. I think Pesci's good. I think everybody's talking about Pesci, and I think they're right. I think Keitel is amazing. Uh, Paquin's amazing. But this is a movie about Bobby De Niro and Al Pacino, for all intents and purposes. And Pacino is good in moments, but is mostly just yelling obscenities and eating ice cream. Yeah, he is. And that's fun. <laughs> I'm yeah, kind, that, I'm kind of there for look, that. Look, I am too. But it goes on for way longer than it needs to, and it uh, just gets really frustrating. I agree with you about Pacino. I, I'm not, I don't know, because he, he's hamming it up. Yeah. I mean, he's not, he's, he's Pacinoing it real hard. Yeah. No, Nobody's telling him no. Scorsese's not stopping him. The editor's not cutting around, like, in falling apart. And I'm very convinced that the ice cream is not a character choice. They're just putting the ice cream to keep Pacino happy. Uh, <laughs> I don't get it. Write it into the character. Yeah, I get. I only get paid in ice cream when I do it. I didn't realize movie. Jimmy Hoffa was such a, a cream head. <laughs> but, yeah, I love the stuff. Uh, it's a funny joke, especially for all the homophobic obscenities <laughs> he throws around. Uh, yeah, look, I, this is a story that I should love. I'm all about mob stuff. I'm all about union stuff. I'm all about the secret history that goes on in back rooms. Uh, all about people looking back on their life with regret and wishing they had been a different person. This is all shit that I am so into. Uh, I, I love Bobby, uh, even when he's bad. I love Pacino, even when he's bad. I like Scorsese, even when he's bad. I should have been an easy mark for this movie. And it bummed me out so bad that uh, I had a panic attack. Um, and that's not the movie's fault. That's my fault. Uh, but I just don't understand pretending it's good. I don't. I don't get it. Uh, I'm fundamentally confused. Now, and Ar Arthur, every time I get very mad at this movie, Arthur does a very good job of reminding me how much I like the last hour of this film. And that's important because I think the last hour of this film really does kind of tie everything together. It's key. It is crucial. Yeah. It, it's the, I think the reason that people like it so much. I, re I think the last yeah. hour, and if you're dialed in for the entirety of the film, especially if you were you know, fortunate to see it in theaters uh, or just you know, really were judicious about your home that watching. That probably helped me a lot. Seeing it in theaters. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 a bad Netflix movie. I really thought it would be a great Netflix movie. I thought it'd be a perfect film for like it's three hours. I gotta go oh. up and get get a bathroom every once in a while. It it, it hurts it a lot. Yeah. Um so that's all and again, that that stuff's on me. Uh but I just I'm f deeply frustrated by it's on our distribution system is what it's on. Well, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. Uh I, I'm just very confused by the amount of people who love this. Um uh, I'm not confused by the awards buzz. Uh, that doesn't shock me. There's a lot of like really uh, critics that I find very interesting, and uh, not always people who go uh, with uh, conventional wisdom, who like this movie a lot, a lot more than I think is reasonable. Um, so eh, it's a big shrug for me. I, I still don't get it, um, even though I like parts of it. Um, if Scorsese had never made an, another movie like this, I would be like, okay, this is a masterpiece. This is really interesting. Uh, and I think it's more interesting... Than some of his other like big crime epics, I think him being an older gentleman now um, gives him kind of a 
emotional access to the half of these stories that uh, I don't know that has ever been fully executed, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think telling the story he's telling uh, about a man of a certain age at the age that he's at, uh, I think Scorsese is able to craft something interesting. Um, but it's just, there's just too much. It's It smacks of overindulgence. This is a $200, and, a $200 million film that could have been made for like $90 million. It could have been made for 60 honestly. Hell, if you really like trim the fat, you could have made this for 30 mm-hmm. And that's what's egregious to me. It's just a vanity project, uh, and nobody at Netflix was going to tell them no because they got Martin Scorsese to make a movie for them. And it just kind of pisses me off. It's a waste of money. Very good. Very right. good, very good. So I get it. I'm, I'm not as angry. I'm not I'm not that. I'm I'm putting on a show a little bit. I'm not that angry. Yeah, but uh, okay, thanks, Arthur. This is a movie <laughs> that sort of fell into uh the realm of the snubbed film, the mm-hmm. movie that ever that, that not everyone, but many people thought, okay, you're not, you know, paying attention to this movie, you're not paying attention to this filmmaker, this kind of movie. And uh it began to be inflected with political sort of stuff. And uh, I'm I'm gonna find Cats? I'm gonna no <laughs> I'm finding myself siding in a weird place. Okay, you're siding with people you don't agree with. A little bit. Okay, and and, and, and that's and, an important preface. It, it bothers me. I get it. But so, th- what it, what the movie ends up being is a very run of the mill genre film. Specifically, it is a zombie film that has been slightly retooled, and the iconography has been slightly shifted around, and there's been a Shyamalan like twist added to the film, which is interesting. And uh, the casting becomes um, racially opposite of what we expect. And I'm talking about Jordan Peele's Us. Interesting. Jordan Peele's Us is just, I mean, it, it's a very well-made zombie movie. It's like Assault on Precinct 13. It, it, I mean, it, it's, it's a siege film. It's a siege film. It's exactly what it is. And, yes, there's interesting iconography that's being used. There's interesting sort of uh, set designing choices that are being made. And Lupita Nyong'o's performance is really, really good. Don't get me wrong. But that being said, it's not like the new master of horror. It, it, is, it is simply I've just re- retooled a, a zombie movie. And and uh, and I mean I enjoyed it. Yeah. I liked it. I'd watch it again. But I don't find it to be so full of layers. I don't find it be so. F- I mean, there are layers in the, insofar yeah. as there's always layers, especially in the horror genre. Mm-hmm. The horror genre itself mm. does that. Mm-hmm. That's just that's what you do when you do horror. You talk about anxieties. You talk about things that frighten you, and you talk about things that society finds to be sort of troubling. And to cast that in a, a sort of slightly different racial um, lens is interesting. But that being said, it's not really doing anything new i think what it's doing that's interesting is a uh upstairs downstairs story as horror film it, it is i mean, parasite a film that we've already talked about during this show this episode uh, I, I think it is doing a lot of the same things as parasite in a much more explicitly genre key no, if that I, makes sense and I, I, again i think parasite's a better film uh, yeah and I, there's, I, there's a reason that i i will talk more about the end of the tour as we get into our five through one picks uh, I think I, I get what you're saying, and you're not the first person I've heard express similar opinions. I, you're not the only smart person that I know that, uh, or know of rather, who's that, not a racist, who's not a racist, and also is not going for this film. No, but, I, and again, I liked it. And I, yeah, I, I'm hearing, I'm hearing that you liked it in your voice. I, I think 
and again, I've seen it three times now, so that's probably a big part of it. I watched this movie a lot this year. I, I've seen it twice. Really? You've yeah. seen it twice, and you're yeah. still kind of in this boat. I'm just, I'm Interesting. Like, I'm like, no, it's, okay. it, it's good, but it's it's just a really well-made horror movie. And that being said, it's not in any way groundbreaking. Yeah, I don't know that it's groundbreaking, but I think what it's going for is interesting. And well, this is going to be a conversation we're going to have I for felt, the rest of 2020. I felt I think. like Get Out was a groundbreaking sure, sort of sure. effort, and, and a well-deserved screenplay Oscar win for Jordan Peele, and really deserved sort of directorial Oscar uh, nomination mm-hmm. as well, and perhaps win for that as well. But I, when it comes to us, us just seems like. Again, let's just do a different kind of slant and do basically follow the, the same kind of conventions and just sort of reskin some of those things with some slightly different, you know, visual imagery, but make it a Twilight okay. Zone episode and move on. I think there's questions about uh, culpability within capitalism that the film asks that are pretty interesting. I think there's a lot of questions about identity that the film asks that are interesting again i'm I, but i don't know a zombie movie that doesn't do that i can't wait to continue to talk about this movie with you for the rest of 2020 um but, I'm, yeah uh, i'm not going to convince you right here i'm yeah, not yeah. trying i'm not trying to I, and so uh, i just i mean again i'm I just like fascinated lot, by but this pick I, I i but i find myself in a place where i'm going okay i understand the sort of knee-jerk reaction of mm. we want to make sure that we're recognizing directors of color who are doing great work and mm. we're doing a terrible job of it mm. and i totally agree with that but this is not that film. Okay. That that's what I would say. It's like this this is not the one to go for. You know, last black band in San Francisco. Uh white director actually. Yeah. Oh, that's right, isn't it? Joe yeah. Gosh, that's the yeah, worst. Joe Talbot's white guy. Oh yeah, yeah. But um other other films that sort of about those yeah. kind of issues seem to be doing slightly better jobs. But anyway, that's that's my thought. It's, so. Yeah, fair 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 points, man. So all right, moving now on. Now we can get excited though. Yes. Your best franchise entry of twenty twenty or twenty nineteen. It's twenty twenty now. Twenty nineteen last year. What was your favorite franchise entry, Arthur? Star Wars. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, it's fine if it is. Hey, look, no, honestly, I'd appreciate it. Uh, I don't have the counter opinion on that movie. Don't worry. It's too bad. <laughs> yeah, I want to hear it someday. Uh, I I was really torn on this because it came down to two movies, but I, I think I'm just going to go just because of the sheer magnitude of what it does and it's in game makes sense uh, yeah I, I, I mean for sure yeah i think the better franchise ender uh, yeah. in, in many ways um even though it's not an ender um but i i just i've been fascinated by this experiment since 2008 in iron man and, and just to see how it's played out the ups and downs and the odd twists and turns from critical response and audience response and then people who were this Marvel fatigue is a real thing. The change of the movie business. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, I mean, it, it, it is a franchise that we will study, uh, I think, in, in 20, 30 years and look back to see how it changed business and how it made Disney the uh, the new the world order um, in many ways. And so, yeah, and it's a lot of fun. I, I think it's just a really solid movie, too. And, and so, um, yeah, it was it was endgame for me. Makes sense. But really close behind it was John Wick 3. Well, that's a great segue because my pick for best franchise entry is John Wick Chapter 3. A truly mesmerizing display of violence and physical comedy, the likes of which the human mind can barely comprehend. Uh, Kung Fu is done with horses. Kung Fu is done with books. All of the fights happen in all of the places. Book foo, horse foo, dog foo. It's got it We've got all, a foo for baby. you. You got it. Oh, you got it. This movie, you want it? This movie's got it for you. Look, I've been a uh, fan of the John Wick franchise for you know, five years now. I've been beating this drum for a while. Um, 
this movie's I still haven't watched it a second time because I I I can still see it clear as day. Uh th- this is probably honestly the least individually successful film in this franchise, which I think makes it interesting that I'm going to back that is for interesting. it. Interesting. As the franchise pick for the year. Well, and and I think it's because it can't, it can't we were at the point in this franchise where it can't stand on its own. I think you could throw somebody in John Wick chapter 2 and they don't he the guy somebody killed his dog in the first movie he killed them all but this is what happened because of that three is kind of getting to the point where the plot is irrelevant it mm-hmm. is do you like these characters do you like this mythology do you like good stunts um and, and i think yes. the the continual pivot from action thriller to darkly comedic thriller that started in john wick chapter two well really the elements of it are in the first film but the hard pivot starts in chapter two and the kind of full realization of these films as uh the legacy bearers of like buster keaton really kind of comes into fruition in chapter three keanu reeves gets thrown through and or his stunt doubles get thrown through like eight panes of glass in a row this movie knows that it's funny this movie is doing bits uh, now, whether you or not you think somebody getting their face caved in by a horse is funny is up to you. And I get it. It's gross as heck. Uh, it's also hilarious. It's also hilarious. Look, we live in a horrifying time. Uh, we live in a society. We do live in a society. Uh, <laughs> the point that I was going to get at, though, is like I, I, I've heard people kind of like the longer these franchise, this franchise in particular goes on. Uh, especially the the more the, the cacophony of gunfire becomes kind of deafening in these films. I, I've heard some people just be really kind of a little more turned off by this franchise than they used to be, and I think that's understandable. I think th- these these films do tiptoe into gun fetishization at times, uh, and that's a quibble worth having and worth unpacking about about these movies. I, I think it's totally valid. Um, at the same time, I think these franchise this franchise does not exist in the real world. Very concretely, Clearly. does this movie state that it is not about real human beings? It is a uh, a mythology about the kind of movies we made throughout the '90s and the 2000s. Um, and I just think John Wick Three is a fascinating, gloriously weird time. Uh, Dustin, what was your favorite franchise entry? My favorite franchise entry is a maybe slightly strange pick because it is the first entry in a franchise that just got green lit. And uh, that is the Knives Out franchise. I am. That's a cheap pick, but I'll take it. Yeah, I'm, no, I'm there for it because it's going to happen. It's a new IP. It, yeah, said, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I love that movie. It was just so much stinking fun. And I want to see more and more of Daniel Craig's Foghorn Leghorn character yes. doing that kind of detective work. I like an Agatha Christie novel with an A-list cast. I'm all about it. The donut hole wasn't a hole at all. It was, it was another donut inside the donut. I'm, I'm there for it. It's a fun performance. Benoit is Benoit Blanc is uh, Benoit Blanc, one of our great American heroes. Yeah, Ryan Johnson just was like, okay, but what if Perot was American? More <laughs> specifically, what if he was from a holler? <laughs> I want I want them to remake all of the. Daniel Craig James Bond movies, but starring Benoit Blanc. Mm. Oh, Benoit Blanc in Casino Royale. Yeah, James uh, Daniel Craig as Benoit, Benoit Blanc, Blanc as Casino. James Bond in Casino Royale. No, okay. no James Bond involved at all. Oh, it's, it's just, just Benoit Blanc in Blanc. Casino Royale. Benoit Blanc. Yeah. Oh my god, he's so good in that movie. I'm for a mint julep to a martini shake and not stir. So, 
it's look, I I love <laughs> I love him insisting you are not going to put me in action movies after I'm done with these stupid Bond movies. I'm a comedian now, damn it. <laughs> I only do comedy. Thank you, Steven Soderbergh, for yeah. opening that door. Oh, so glad for that. Yeah, but yeah, Knives Out is my franchise entry. Weird. Cheap. I'll allow that. Cheap. I'll, yeah, I'll take it too. Yeah, because it's going to be a franchise, and I'm all about it. You're so not wrong. Moving right along, what movie do you wish you'd seen in the theater? Which wish you'd seen or wish you'd seen in theaters? Yeah, either or. So Arthur. I'm going to go with Greta Gerwig's Little Women. Whoa, you haven't caught up with it? I haven't got a chance to see oh, it. I've seen same. it this, this weekend. It's um, very good, y'all. Yeah, I, you know, I love Lady Bird. I think it's a great movie, and I was very excited to see uh, Little Women. Um, just, I mean, Sarah Sharonin is automatically a draw for me. You, you couple that with Laura Dern and Florence Pugh and, and the Chalamet. Uh, and I, I was, and, and uh, Chris Cooper. Chris yeah, Cooper's is, there. Odin yeah, Kirk's there. You're going to love this yeah. movie. Yeah. I mean, it is made for me. Not really. Um, no, it actually was not Completely out of that demographic. But, um, but you, hey, you know what? I like to think Greta Gerwig made it for sweet, soft boys like us who like this kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, and so I, it wasn't I, for us primarily, but as know. Dalton alluded to in this show episode, um, I'd never. I've, I'm not familiar with Little Women. I've never read the book. I haven't seen any of the like four previous adaptations or three. Um, so it'll be my first experience with it. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's one I was really hoping to see just because I respect Gerwig a lot. And I, I, I think it's just a phenomenal cast. And so I'm very excited when I do get to finally catch up with it. So that's my major blind spot uh, because from everything I gather, it could have easily wound up in a top 10 list for me as well. Nice. Very good. Very good. What do you wish you had seen or seen in theaters? Oh, Dalton? man, I really wish I'd gotten to Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Uh, it's good. Celine Scalise. Don't worry. It'll come out here in a month. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a big part of why I haven't seen it. Uh, we, we didn't get it. We still haven't got it, uh, which is not that surprising. It opens on Valentine's Day. Man, is that when it finally goes into wide U.S. It's release? Supposed to. Jeez. Ugh, I want to see this damn movie so bad. Uh, we love girlhood here at this show. Uh, you may or may not know that about us. Uh, we did an episode What's about it. What's its French title? Uh, girlhood's French title? title that's an easier one than portrait of a lady on fire i can't do either but girlhood's easier um i like both of these movies a lot or i like girlhood a lot arthur's Just doing a very that. good job tricking me he's <laughs> fooled me with treachery um he yeah skated around that didn't he oh yeah absolutely i'm not gonna try to speak french on this show uh yeah everybody loves this movie apparently it's great uh i don't, I don't know a single person that's seen it that doesn't love it uh i've heard nothing but good things about it i'm very excited to catch up with it i've seen the trailer for it like four times they keep running it in front of movies i go to see i can't see it till february it's horseshit i wish i lived in a real city sometimes uh i'm very excited for when i eventually get to see it though dustin what what did you wish you'd caught up with or what did you catch that you wish you'd seen on a big screen so i'm gonna pull adult and i have two picks um a, a movie that i saw probably the first 45 minutes of uh twice now at this point and i really wish i'd seen in the theaters and that's gemini man from Ang Lee. yeah it is I, I mean i saw it on arthur's tv with the high frame rate and then i saw 45 minutes of it on my tv with my not high frame rate and it's weird and wrong uh wronger when it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing it's wrong also when it's doing what it is supposed to be doing but it's doing it wrong in the right way and i just i desperately wish i had gotten the chance to see that when a great big screen and experience the will smith doubling and all that stuff that goes along with it i just yeah i, I wish i'd caught that in theaters we should have pulled our resources we should have gone to one of this like the one screen in this country that had 120 frames a second oh man yeah yeah, yeah. That, Road trip. Yeah, we'd have to go to New York for that. I we'll, think that's the only place that had it. We'll keep New York that in California. One of the did two. LA have it too? I know in New York. One of the two. Um, yeah. Ugh. 
we'll keep that in mind as we watch our 2020 releases. The other film I want to mention is an experimental film that has not come anywhere near us at all and uh, is making uh, – it's about a half an hour, 35 minutes long last time I checked uh, the run time on it. But it's from a filmmaker called Charlotte Proger who is a lesbian documentary experimental filmmaker, and she's got a movie called SAF05. Um, and it is a safari documentary about lionesses that have manes. Tight. And in this film, it runs this also con- commentary on gender fluidity hmm. that is really fascinating. And the reviews that I've been reading have been just sort of really, really um, inspiring and uh, titillating for me as I as I think about this movie. And so um, if you get a chance, um, obviously it'll be an installation piece at the OKC Museum of Art if you're local or your local museum wherever you happen to be listening. I mean, it feels like a MoMA kind of movie if you're in New York and uh, it may find its way into some other festivals and eventually find some other forms of distribution Ubu I'm looking at you um, and maybe even, movie yeah movie maybe some places like that that might end up carrying it it might end up finding a criterion release at some point uh, Proger has been making some waves lately in the realm of experimental film so maybe she'll get a box set before too long but as of now that has not taken place but I really really wish I'd gotten the chance to catch it I just it was in Dallas at one point for mm. like one weekend and I'm not going down there for that so no. half hour movie it just how, you got to justify your well, expenses. You heard it first on the praise down. You'll hear it here second. If you die in Dallas, you go to hell. That's a fact. I, you know what? I, I believe I read that in Hezekiah three eleven. So you're not wrong. Yeah, it's it is written. So moving right along, as we misquote the not Bible, um, best action movie set piece. What is your selection, Arthur Gordon? Oh, he hasn't decided yet. Gazoontite. I am going to go with the white knuckle opening to Ad Astra. <sighs> nice. Good um, pick. Man, you're not wrong. Yeah, it is. Uh, because it does all the things uh, in a, you know, it's the opening of that film. Uh, and we know, obviously, that Brad Pitt's not going to die. Um, but it is still hyper tense and unsettling. And anxiety-inducing as somebody who hates heights anyway, and he's just in this free fall from the atmosphere. Um, and in doing all of that, it also immediately establishes that we're in some sort of near future where we have antennae that stretch from the ground to outer space somehow. Um, and we have astronauts just working these, like some sort of oil pipeline. Um, and it is bonkers, uh, but it is also super intense from just the way it's shot. I mean, great cinematography already establishing how this film's going to look also the sound design and look of the film. And it's just a great kickoff to a wild time at the movies, uh, that we talked about with a lot of love, uh, last week. Um, and so that, that's gotta be my, my recommendation, my mention here as action set piece. Very good, very good. Dalton, what is your favorite set piece of action? Well, the lunar car chase in Ad Astra was a uh, very close second. Yeah. Uh, But uh, as Dustin has uh, mentioned, this is action scene or set piece, and uh, I've kind of gone off a little uh, off the beaten path, and that's mostly because this film that I thought would crack my top ten earlier in the year ended up getting squeezed out. And I want to give it some love, and then as Gaspar Noé's climax, I love the opening dance sequence of this movie. It's very good. It is incredible. I watch it. Uh, I think about it all the time. Uh, I've watched it at least twice uh, on YouTube since I've seen the movie. 
this whole opening sequence of, of uh, climax is incredible. Uh, and this is before all the characters are on drugs, uh, yeah. and before the camera is really messing with you. And yeah. it's just like being, it's doing fun incredible. things to, to make you happy. And then it's going to do fun things to weird you out later. But yeah, this, this just bravura sequence. I mean, this is a movie full of long, lengthy takes. Uh, but yeah, as Arthur has said, it's incredible. It, it's just, it's astonishing. It's great dance choreography, great camera work to move around these dancers. Um, and all of the dialogue that's happening in this opening 10 minutes. Uh, and that's really, it's, it's a big set piece dance number um, that turns into a big dialogue set piece. And again, the camera's moving the entire time. And yeah, there's no explosions and there's no gunfire. But man, is it a set piece if ever yeah, there is. was one. Yeah, it's, that's my pick. All right, nice. very good, very good. I'm going to name something that's been named already, and that is Horse Foo. Yeah. Oh, from yeah. John Wick 3. Yeah, I know you I, love that uh, sequence. And, I was really close to the dog foo because uh, Halle Berry unleashing the hounds is just man, incredible. I almost had the, the fight in the library with the, the big uh, NBA player, I can't remember his name, and then the motorcycle sword fight, also very cool. I kind of wanted to say the set piece is John Wick 3. Oh, yeah, the whole, definitely. The whole, the whole movie, thing. The whole movie is yeah. the set piece. Yeah. So I just want like, to name that for that. So yeah, it's, it's fantastic. It's so much fun. And yes, I am the person. It's there for uh, that kind of humor and uh, darkly comedic take on silly and fun and interesting ways to see people get you know maimed and probably put in traction. That's what movies are for. So um, all about that. There you go, dear listener. Last category before we get to our top five. Your guilty pleasure of 2019. I don't believe in guilty pleasures. Love everything you love unabashedly. I agree, but there's not a better way to title this He's, than, than yeah, that. Of course, but it was just important for us to get out of the way up top. Yes. I totally concur. What are you going to pick for that, though, Arthur? Look, if you don't know what I'm going to say in the next five seconds, then you haven't been listening to the last uh, three months' worth of episodes. Because it's Gemini Man. Yeah. It's Will Smith and Ang Lee, and Will Smith and Will Smith Jr. just doing wild crazy yeah, you love this nonsensical movie. stuff uh because ang lee doesn't care about a story he doesn't care about this movie he's, he's just fascinated by this technology and it still has something fascinating to say about an aging celebrity and reckoning with digital filmmaking and it's, it's got uh he doesn't uh, know how to make an whip kick film. with a motorcycle holy crap yeah it does uh it's got some intense uh stunts and uh, a great chase sequence uh through the streets of i can't remember where they're at um that town yeah um yeah that town but it's a gorgeous town nonetheless and the high frame rate well, is wild it yeah, just it was yeah i thank you so much for showing uh, me that action set piece because it's wild yeah and the plot is nothing to write i mean it is a plot you've seen uh there is an agent who's burned and his country has turned on him uh and then it ends kind of like rambo first blood uh in a small town where they're taking on uh the 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 baddie police force um but i, I think it's just a fascinating movie and i think ang lee is doing a lot of the same uh, thematic work that he's doing in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And, and I think they're of a kind and a fascinating double bill. And I, I love it. Unabashedly love it. I am not mad about your love, and I like that pick. What is your pick for your favorite guilty ple pleasure, Dalton? Well, it was almost uh, under the Silver Lake, um, the follow-up to uh, It Follows by... Boop! Forgot his name. Sorry, bud. Um it happens sometimes. I don't have his name pulled up. Uh, but He's I just got three of them, doesn't he? He does have three names. I've decided I have no reason to feel guilty about liking this movie, though. Um, I'll go to bat for it. A lot of people it. have. Uh, there's some gross stuff in it, but I think the film knows what's gross and what isn't. Um, and I think it's got a pretty nuanced understanding of its own themes. 
most of you just want to give it some love, but you all already knew my answer. You know the answer, listener. It's cats, baby. I love Tom <laughs> Hooper's cats. Are you kidding me? Uh, I can't remember if I've talked about this on the show or not. Uh, the, the, the theater I saw this in had a dead pixel. Uh, and I'm convinced it's the only reason I'm standing before you as a sane man today, because I don't believe the human mind can take in all of cats. <laughs> this is before the patch, so I got to see Judy Dench's human fingers and her, her uh, human wedding ring. Oh, I got to see all of it, and it's glorious, unpatched, weird, uh, d- disgusting CGI. Joking aside, I really do like this film. This is not me just like being poisoned with yeah. irony. I think it's fun. I like the dance numbers in this. Like you got the railway cat who's a real tap dancer, just lays it down. Look, the dancing looks weird. Uh it, it is uncanny to see again, I don't I still don't fully understand how the CGI in this works. Uh my understanding is it's just a big Snapchat filter. Uh so they but they film dancers. I know they film dancers. I've seen the behind the scenes footage. I don't understand anything about this movie. I'll never understand this film. People the great th- experimental film. People in thought this would make money. That's exactly it, Arthur. It is the great experimental film in 2019 because Universal had this and Doolittle bomb back to back. This might be one of the films that kills Universal Studios. Oh, don't forget the turning, which got a. F in the oh, cinema score. Right. Oh, has it? I didn't know that. Damn, Universal. I, you're on hard times, aren't you? I really want to see The Turning, Cass, too. Cats, Doolittle, 1917, and The Turning. That's a tough In month. a row. Cats is going to live on. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. You, you f- it's Rocky Horror. Yeah, exactly. Find Cats at a bar near you in the next five years at midnight. Uh, I, I, think I can't this is... wait to go down to the Tower Theater on a midnight and watch Dalton prance around as a cat. You know it, baby. Oh, God. Who am I going to okay, go as? Am I going to go as Rum Tum Tugger? I'm there for that. Am I going to go as Rum Tum Tugger or uh, Mr. Mistopheles? Ah, oh, there's so many options. I mean, clearly I'm Deuteronomy. <laughs> you are old Deuteronomy, clearly. Um I'm the James Corden. I don't know who he is, but... I like his number is weirdly sexual. My man takes down an entire shrimp that is not the size of a shrimp, just deep throats it. It's a very sexual film, guys. That is very much my story. Yeah, it's a very good movie. He just <laughs> likes... check out. He gets uh, champagne waterfalled into his face. This, this is my life. <laughs> this movie... Again, who did they make this film for? It is too <laughs> sexual for children. Uh, if a nine-year-old saw this film, it would awaken something in them. <laughs> no doubt. Have you seen Idris Elba in this movie? No. Ooh-hoo. Have you? Like, every cat in this film is hypersexual in a weird, horrifying, nightmarish, impossible-to-look-away-from fashion. It is a psyop. It is psychic warfare. I don't understand anything about it. And yet I am kind of enamored with it. I think the singing is all really good. Uh, memory is yeah, the hackiest, most overdone uh, musical song of all time, and yet it is it just Jennifer Hudson just crushes it, just absolutely beats it up uh, and makes you cry in this dumb, weird movie. Uh, and then I think the they bring it home with Mr. Mistopheles pretty well. Like there's some fun moments in there. It's too long. It's too weird. It does not work it's unless you... It's an hour and 45 minutes. It's too long. <laughs> you can't watch this by yourself. You have to have friends with you. You have to like have like a cacophony of laughter. You have to have people who are like singing along and clapping and looking at you, asking you, what the fuck did I just see? It is required group viewing, and that is something that's irreplaceable. You can't... You just can't get that, which is why I'm glad it's going to be a cult phenomenon that lives forever. I like this movie a lot. I don't care what anybody says. It's better than Star Wars 9. Wow. 
All right. Put it on my tombstone. Dustin, I, what's I didn't your see it, so I don't, I, I don't have a comment I to make. can't wait to watch it with you someday. You know what? Yes, and I want to see you in the full cat outfit at the Tower Theater. And they all say, oh, Sorry. Okay. Never was there ever. Um, so my guilty pleasure is a movie that probably made some top ten lists, honestly. But I don't think it's that good. I think it's very sort of stocky. It's very just sort of playing the game in a paint-by-numbers kind of way. Um, and, and in a similar vein is sort of my criticisms of us. But it's doing things that I just tend to really t- gravitate towards. Kung Fu, specifically. And so it's Zhang Yimou's Shadow. Um, it, it, this is the Umbrella Blade movie. The right? Umbrella, it's got yes. it, okay, it's got Umbrella Blade sword things. That's why I like it. It is just a big fun, uh, you know, wuxia kind of kung fu movie. It does sort of play around with the color palette, so it feels a little kind of hero esque. It does sort of play around with a narrative that feels a lot like uh, Akira Kurosawa's Kagamusha, where you've got doubles and shadow warriors and that kind of stuff. And it's got you know some political intrigue that's working on, but you don't care, and it doesn't really matter that much. It's really just about the kung fu, and it's awesome, and it's fun, and it's loud, and it's silly, and then sometimes it's kind of quiet, and it's got some meditative sort of moments, but honestly, it feels a little pretentious, uh, is what I want to say. And though, despite all of its pretensions, I have so much fun watching that movie. And so, because it's, the kung fu is very awesome. And so I just want to recommend 2019's available on Netflix, um, uh, not The Shadow, that's a different movie altogether. Shadow, um, directed by Zhang Yimou. So that's my guilty pleasure of 2019. Here we are now at the moment you've all been waiting for, dear listener. We are going to give our top fives, and Ooh. it has definitely not been a week since we did the last bit. No, yeah, it's it's uh, we've Stay been here. Night. We've been yeah, it's it's been here for so long, thousands of hours. We've been recording. A bunch of Baramies. It's, it's so many Baramies have passed. Nothing has changed. We promise. Cross our hearts and kiss our elbows. So, uh, moving right along, like though, try. let's let <laughs> what's number five for you, Arthur? Um, so my number five is actually a documentary, uh, and it is Honeyland nice. uh, from Macedonia, mm. um, which is just a really simple concept that really turns into a dynamic, terse narrative about a beekeeper and unruly neighbors. Um, and there's a lot of discussion of, uh, consumerism and nature and uh resources and using those appropriately and what that all looks like and it started as just this government uh documentary about like the tourism or something uh and they met the figure that that the the film follows and they decided to shift direction on this uh and turn it into a, a story about her uh and it's just a really fascinating look at her life in the middle of the this country where she lives in these nomadic uh family comes in next to her and really upsets her her way of life um it gets very tense at times it's very emotional at times uh it's just a very powerful uh documentary i think and just a really interesting concept for a documentary that i really appreciate it and so that is my uh number five very cool very cool i did not catch that one but i intend to now thank you arthur what is your number five dalton my number five is a film we talked about on the show it is claire denis high life uh, it's good. I didn't expect this film to end up in my top ten when we watched it for the show. I liked it a lot, but uh, in the month since we watched it and discussed it, it has stayed with me, and more so than some of the other 2019 films that I've loved. I, I, again, I don't love High Life. It's not exactly a, a laugh-a-minute thrill ride, you know what I mean? But it is a complicated, deeply sad film 
that very much feels like a film for 2019. Uh, made its festival debut in 2018, obviously, but got its wide release in 2019. And it, it very much feels like Claire Denis wrestling with uh, our time and place in human history right now. And it's it's a film that I've I've just thought about a ton in the the weeks and months since we watched it. It just it stays with me. There's so much vivid imagery. Andre Benjamin tending his garden. Robert Pattinson's sad uh, space monkey eyes. Uh, it just uh, all of these moments. And obviously, there's the infamous box. Uh, but if you want to hear all of our thoughts on this, we discuss it on the the show. Uh, a film that I can't stop thinking about. Claire Denis Island. Very good, very good. It made my number eight, and uh, yes, I love that movie a lot. And I would like to say at this point, just the top ten is like these ten. I wanted is like number one ten movies. Yeah, is really? almost how I feel about them. I think that's fair because yeah. I just I love them all. Like these are I could yeah. switch out mine and be pretty comfortable. Yeah, I, think. I could change ranks at yeah. any point. Yeah, for sure. My top three are the only ones that I feel really confident on the ranking on. But yeah, I hear you guys. Yeah. Okay. So my number five uh, film is Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Oh, you by did get to see it, Celine Sciamma, oh, and it's so good, guys. And I watched it with my twelve-year-old son. I had to cover his eyes for a couple moments, but you actually, didn't have to. You chose to. I chose to. Uh, <laughs> he's twelve. Um, All right, that's fair. And uh, but honestly, it's not. There's not that much sex. Um, it is absolutely this love story of this uh, portrait painter who is hired to see this noble woman who uh, is uh, getting forced into a marriage that she did not wish to have. Uh, she was actually studying at a convent to be a nun, and her sister dies, uh, commits suicide, and she's forced to go back to the island on which she lives and refuses to uh, pose for a portrait for a male. Uh, portrait painter and this other woman comes on and she pretends to be just a person hired to go with her on walks mostly to keep her from jumping off cliffs and dying and they fall in love and so i've heard so much vivaldi so much uh man is it, it is so um Celine Scammett, um we as we know uh did girlhood which is this great sort of contemporary era movie and she's interested in the lives of of women and uh, this is a this is a period piece. I mean, this is late seventeenth century, but it's just gorgeous to look at and a compelling uh, love story that ends badly, but yet not sadly. And uh, that's a good thing. So I love Portrait of a Lady on Fire. So that's my number five. Moving on to number four. What do you say, Mister Arthur Gordon? Uh, my number four pick uh, makes incredible use of a single take shot. For a great duration of the film, uh, it has a lot to say about art and violence, mm. and that is Japan's One Cut of the Dead. Oh, um, yeah. The horror zombie comedy uh, from early, late 2019, um, and it is just one of the smartest scripts I have I seen put to screen uh, last year. Um, super funny. Uh, when you think you know what it's doing, it completely pulls the rug out from under you, and I don't want to get into it too much because I think it's just super smart. Uh, but it has a lot to say. Uh, it really throws a wrench into the auteurism theory uh, mm. discussion, which is a lot of fun. Uh, just brilliant, I think, uh, use of a, of a script and format and structure and, and bring that all together. And it's a thing about a thing that becomes another thing, and then you think it is that thing, and then it becomes another thing. And it's genius, I think. And it's just a lot of fun, uh, a, a lot of laughs, a lot to appreciate if you've seen a number of zombie films or horror films and 
And if you just love movies about movies, I, I think One Cut of the Dead is for you, and that's my number four pick. Now, that's available on the Shutter, right? Arthur? Correct. It is on Shutter. Do you guys find, and this is sort of a rando question. I know we're, we're, we're trying to get through these very, very no, quickly. Good. But I want to ask this question because uh, the streaming services that you use, you know, your Criterion has a couple 2019 releases. Yeah. Your Amazon Prime uh, definitely drops a lot of your A24. Shutter gets exclusive access to some yeah, of these Yeah, Hulu gets. And, and, and you find, do you find yourself, like, when you're doing your catch-up, like, falling into a streaming service or maybe neglecting a streaming service because you're trying to catch other things? I think I really, especially at the last year of the year when I was getting intentional about catching up and making a top 10 list and really seeing everything, I actually went through and made about a list of 30 or so movies that were streaming and where they were streaming. I found myself going to Netflix to see, you know, Sweetheart or Marriage Story. And then I'm going to Shudder to see One Cut of the Dead. And I'm going to Prime, where I think Ashes Pure as White was mm-hmm, at, and mm-hmm. you know, Loose was on Hulu. So I, I really felt uh, a great divergence of a singular platform, and I was really branching out and using everything. And even Criterion had a couple of options I didn't get to. But I mean, I really, really think made great use of all of my streaming networks. Well, good because I have the problem because I'll, I'll get onto Prime, and that's just where I live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or I, all Hulu I mean, or whatever. I'm yeah. kind of there with Hulu. Yeah, I, I like the the kind of indie pickups they've been getting yeah. a lot lately mm-hmm. over the last. I feel like the last two or three years. Yeah, uh, they've they've just gotten kind of interesting films, and that's where I always go for things that I or maybe forgotten like. Uh, uh, staying off at Sparrow Creek, I found that on Hulu, and that was yeah. one that just really stuck with me. Last uh, um, plus one, another one from 2019 that I found on Hulu that very uh, came very much came close to cracking my top 15 or so. Yeah, but yeah, I, I fall into Hulu too, so I'm yeah. glad that at least one of us is really trying to make well, sure. Well, uh, I kind of neglected scavenge. Netflix, um, so that's why you I did not catch bit. a Marriage Story or The Irishman or I Lost My Body, which yeah. you know could have probably cracked uh, the I list. I feel like Netflix had a really good run this year in, in that regard because sure. you had Burning Cane, which was pretty highly regarded. You had, I think, uh, Triple Frontier, which I'm a big yeah, fan of. Sweetheart, again, like I said, um, uh, High Flying Bird. That was this year. Lost right? My Body, High Flying Bird. Yeah, uh, Velvet Buzzsaws, which had that was uh, quite a few defenders as well and yeah. some acclaim. So I think Netflix had a pretty good run in that that area. I always wait till probably like halfway through the year on Netflix releases because yeah. I feel like by that point the word's kind of yeah. out on yeah. which ones. Agree. Worth, yeah, getting around to. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, let's move right along. Um, Dalton, what's your number four pick? Well, speaking of portraits of people on fire, my number four pick is Ari Aster's Midsummer. There you uh, go. Nice. A film that, unlike One Cut of the Dead, is pretty much what you think it's going to be. Uh, it just continually gives you more layers to the thing you thought it was going to be. Um, I think the layer that has gotten a lot of talk, probably in the, it felt like the month or so after Midsommar, it took a, a couple of weeks of this being out for people to really kind of start talking about Ari Aster's seemingly deliberate depiction of uh, very shiny white supremacy um, and the way that that can look less like uh, people with tiki torches and more like people who are an insular community and like a certain type of people to join them. Um, and apparently I haven't seen the director's cut. Uh, I have heard that a lot of those themes are expounded upon. That's a, th- a nice. theme of it that I find very interesting. Um, just th- that Ari Aster knew that that's something that needs to be kind of thought about in the text of, of this, this, uh, this pagan ritual that uh, we see unfold throughout the film. Um, and, uh, we'll just give more props to Florence Pugh, uh, here because she really is the glue that holds this film together. I mean, everybody's great in it. Jack Rainer's gay, great. Will Poulter, um, oh my gosh, I keep wanting to call him Cheat Adagonier. Will, uh, <laughs> yeah, he's yeah. great. Everybody's so good, and I feel bad yeah. I don't have everybody's names off the top of my head. But uh, yeah, it's just, it is a stacked cast full of really incredible performances and beautiful and 
deeply unsettling uh, production and set design. Yeah, great, great film. Looks incredible. Uh, I can't wait to watch it again. Uh, just going to have to set aside the two and a half hours of my life to do so. <laughs> I think fair. about it all the time. Man. Now on Prime. Yep. Now on Prime. Fair enough, fair enough. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. My number four pick is uh, Jafar pa- Panahis. There you go. Got it's, it. it's hard to say that guy's name. Uh, Three Faces. Uh, this guy has been making movies in guerrilla fashion. Uh, he's on a ban from the Iranian government because he's a political dissident. And so he's on a 20-year ban. He cannot make movies. And yet he keeps making them and smuggling them out on thumb drives and uh, does them on the cheap. Uh, so this is it's not a like film. Roman Polanski, but respectable. Yes. yes. <laughs> oh, my yes. God. It's a hell of an analogy. Um, and so Three Faces is great. It's a movie about just sort of the role of women and some of the uh, sort of assumptions about them regarding specifically uh, the showbiz industry and acting and what it means to be a female actress. It begins with a moment of a suspected suicide, and uh, Panahi and uh, another actress are making their way. Most of this is shot by him himself and uh, using a whole lot of non-professional actors in this very, very small, very, very remote Iranian village and it is incredible. It's just a great movie and uh, a whole lot of fun, not even without the sort of political context beside it. So love it a lot, and you should see Three Faces. So moving right along, number three, what do you say, Arthur? I am going to go with Marriage Story. Oh, I, I really nice. dug it. Um, I really appreciated it. And not just, I mean, the acting's been talked about. Adam Driver's great. Scargo's, you know, really good. I saw all the criticisms of, oh, it's just big acting like the theater kids do. And that's fine. <laughs> uh, but I really appreciate the story that Bombach uh, was able to yeah. construct from it. And I think it's a really dynamic and interesting look at this uh, relationship that's deteriorating. And especially looking at it, I think, through the good times is also an interesting way to do that. Uh, but from just a technical lev- level, I really appreciated Randy Newman's score, uh, Jennifer Lame's editing, and Robbie Ryan's cinematography. I think the movie, just from a pure filmmaking level, is immaculately constructed. Uh, and that's really what I dug the most about it, was that more so than just the acting or the story. I, I think just the total picture itself is uh, a fine example of a movie this year. And so Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story is my number three pick. Very nice, very nice. What's your number three pick, Dalton? Uh, this is a film that very much uh, resonates with me in terms of that total package thing Arthur's talking about. And it is the Safdie Brothers' Uncut Gems. Love uh, it. Howard. Oh, you beautiful, mm. magnificent mess. Uh, this is how I win, fellas. I talk about the movies I liked in 2019 on a dumb show. We all got to find our way to win. You're uh, such a Howie, aren't you? I am. I, I, <laughs> buddy, that character speaks to me in a profound way. Uh, I, I love this movie. I, I love the chaos of it. And this is a thing that, you know, the Safety brothers did to great effect and good time. And I've, I've heard similar things about heaven knows best, but they just, as you know, like Jafar Banahi, they find these non-professional actors, these, these just New York characters, these real human beings who are already filled with so much life. And they say, you're great how you are. Let's figure out how to bring the magic of like you to this film. And it involves just a lot of that guerrilla shooting and, this urgent realism that they, they mm. find. It's just, uh, it's scrappy, it's kinetic, it's beautiful to look at, and really kind of profound at times. I mean, it, it is a film with a lot on its mind, and it's it's not just uh, sports betting. That's the least of its concerns. Uh, it just happens to be the, the focus of the narrative. I, I could uh, read a book about this movie. I like it that much. Very cool, very cool. I'm a big fan of the long take. 
I'm a big fan of the sort of production value that goes into that. And I'm a big fan of improvisation oh, yeah. uh, when it comes to actors. And so yeah. Gaspar Noé's Climax Hell makes yeah. my number three. Oh, that movie rocks uh, my it. face off. It is so yeah, it stinking good. And uh, it, it is it's sort of based on a, a semi-urban legend of one time uh, these bunch of dancers had their uh, punch dose with LSD. And it went nuts. Yeah, learning this was a real French urban legend was really fun. Yeah. And uh, he just sort of plays with that idea. Okay, so these are your character types, and this is sort of the way you're going to archetype yourself. And huge, at one point, a 42-minute long take happens in this movie. It is insane what they're able to do yeah, and this, how they're able to stage this stuff. I'm so glad you found room for it on your, your top, because that was why I, uh, I put it as the best you know action scene or set piece, because of all of this amazing camera work that goes yeah, on in this it's movie. It's incredible, yeah. and no way is running the camera himself. And so, yes, fantastic. I, uh, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. The, the control of, of moving that camera through those dancing bodies and the angles that he goes to, and it's just wild. Also, the dancing is quite good. Oh, yeah. So, oh, so good. Yeah, led by... Um, Sophia Batella? There we go. But I couldn't get Batella. Yeah, led by Sophia Batella. But yeah, these, these dancers who are not professional actors are all great in it. Yeah, fantastic. So, love it. Number three is Climax from me. Moving on to number two. What do you say, Mr. Arthur Gordon? Uh, this movie almost usurped my number one spot. I, I think uh, it it could go back and forth any day of the week. I think it is arguably maybe the best made movie of the year, uh, but the rewatchability of it drags it just down a little bit, and that is Jennifer Kent's The Nightingale. Yeah. Which is just... That's why I didn't make my list, because it's just unrewatchable. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's why it was number 10 on my yeah. list. Uh, yeah. But I, I mean, just <clears throat> the sheer construction of that i think yeah. you're Kent's not direction wrong. is is flawless on that film and the tone management is yeah. just yeah. Ooh. yeah and it, it features just fantastic character study this deep allegory about the history of this 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 uh this colony and then the people there uh and the way that she presents that story and gives us two great performances in those two leads with billy and the, the i can't think of the girl's name um but it's just a phenomenal look at that tragedy and that pain mm -hmm. um and the way that the tact i think that she handles it with is is still really impressive because in another filmmaker's hands that movie is not as respectable as it is uh and so uh i i really appreciate it really admire it and really respect jennifer kent yeah awesome awesome great pick great pick and it, yeah it's a hard one to pick but your reasons are solid what's your number two pick dalton uh, my number two pick is a very very different film about colonization in its own ways and that is joe talbot's the last black man in san francisco mm. i like uh, that movie a lot well, it's so good which so he, good. he wrote with uh, jimmy fails the uh, the lead actor in this uh who plays the character of the same name from the opening moments of this film i knew it was going to be in my top five i just yeah. was so immediately blindsided by like the clarity of vision the sense of character in place uh and just jimmy's story of of him the story that you know it's such a, a beautiful story about the family mythologies that we create for ourselves uh and and the ways that we hold those things dear and close to us uh when we see our worlds changing around us like it's uh man it's a really just wonderful lovely film full of great performances from uh, actors you've probably never seen before and you know some some returning greats some actors you've definitely seen before uh but it's just top to bottom an amazing debut film uh and uh just what talking about we've talked a lot about budgets uh in this this year-end special but another film that's just doing what it can with what it has and uh, films changing as we talk about on the show all the time and, and seeing 
filmmakers with limited resources make things that are just artistically compelling. Um, the degree to which they're artistically compelling more than most studio theater uh, fair is uh, just really kind of shaking, and uh, I think this is a great example of that. Very cool, very cool. My number two pick is uh, David Eggers' The Lighthouse. Great I pick. like that movie so much. Um, yeah. Much more shark genitalia than I expected, uh, and yet um, I'm all right with it. And I love the dialogue. It is the Melville that I wish I had. Um, I am an English professor, and I teach American literature, and I hate to read Melville except for when he gets a little gothic. And this is sort of rechanneling Melville into that gothic tone, and it's the Melville work I wished I had. It, that, that's why I love it so much. Yeah. And the performances are amazing. Um, yeah. I've already mentioned my favorite performance of the year is Defoe's uh, um, role in this film. So. Tom? Is he Tom? I think it's Tom, yeah. Tom, yeah, that sounds right. And uh, But no, it's great. Classic Tom. It, man, this is just, <laughs> you're such a Tom. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, love the movie a lot. Um, again, Arpat is great and uh, is, is just an incredible uh, film that's wrestling with all of these kind of questions, but in this very, very kind of gothic register. Uh, and that gothicism doesn't just mean vampires. And uh, I like the way he's playing that. And so I enjoy it very much, and The Lighthouse makes my number two. So moving right on down, what's the best film of the year? The best one, Arthur, number one. I'm going with Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. I, I, I can't uh, go I back like on that lot. yet. Um, I, I mean, I just loved it. Uh, the, the, just the pure magnetism of it. And this awesome story this entertaining story this story that has a lot to say and opens up a bunch of discussion points uh and it is just incredibly made the uh the fantastic production design these houses that they've built uh as sets to be able to move the camera through uh bong's uh ability to storyboard out the entire thing and know that going in and finding a crew that understands that and, and was able to put that on film. Uh, it's just incredibly precise and, and efficient and, and very Hitchcockian, not only from a story standpoint, but from a director standpoint as well, because it, Hitch was notorious for the, the control he, he maintained over the way shots were shot and the length of shots and the number of shots so that or there was only so much to work with uh, to remain control from the uh, studio. And Bong taps into a lot of that, shooting only what he needs to shoot, what he wants to shoot, and, and using that to construct this narrative. And, and it makes me excited to to kind of develop and or see more of his work and uncover more of his work. And I want to go back to see The Host and Memory of a Murder and Mother and, and all of these other movies that he's done that have as much acclaim or more than Parasite. Um, but it, it's just one of the most exciting movies I've seen in 2019. Uh, really love it, really respect it, and I can't wait to see what he does next. Yeah, I love it a bunch. Absolutely do. Thank you for that pick very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What is the best movie of the year, Dalton? Jessica, Tell me why. Jessica, Only Child, Illinois, Chicago. Uh, yeah, sign, sign me. That's another uh, sign up for a hit from the director, Bong. Uh, I, God, I love this movie so much. Yeah. I love Parasite. Arthur has already done a great job of kind of elucidating the, the technique and the craft here, but I, I will just say that it's been famously said that uh, all scenes are just two characters, uh, one trying to get something from the other, right? That, that's that's the kind of the, the meat of the drama of all acting scenes. And this film is all about people and what they want from each other and, and the ways in which that is explored and navigated and all set within this very precisely moving music box of drama and thrills uh, and comedy and, and the way in which, you know, we're, we're going to be talking next week about a film that I think does a really good job of navigating genre. Uh, and, and Parasite is uh, 
another film in, the, in that canon of great films that are not beholden to a genre. They exist simultaneously within multiple ways of telling a story. Uh, and it, it is just wonderful to see a, a film that, as Arthur said, is thrilling and is fun, is entertaining, but is also trying to be specific about a time and a place and very universal uh, about the human condition and yeah. the time it was made in. Uh, yeah, it's an incredible film that uh, is one of the the only 2019 releases I got to see multiple times uh, and one of the only ones I wanted to see multiple times yeah. for that matter. Uh, I think about it all the time. Yeah, it's a great film, and I, I think we'll be talking about it another 10 years probably. Take us home, Dustin. Very cool, very cool. My best movie of the year is, um, like last year, if you recall, uh, Orson Welles had a film that was in production. Do you remember this from yeah, last year? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And like, it's it once, well, it really got released in 2018. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and, and so these old sort of filmmakers being able to come up with something and produce something that's really kind of impressive. Jean-Luc Godard <laughs> did a thing and got even a special award invented for the film at Cannes. It didn't win the Palme d'Or at Cannes like yeah. Parasite, but it won a special award because it was just such an achievement. I'm talking about the image book, uh, which is uh, a bunch of Jean-Luc Godard movies and a bunch of Hitchcock movies and a handful of Laurence Olivier movies and a bunch of uh, video clips from the Gulf Wars and from uh, uh, jihadi sort of propaganda videos and also Godard doing poetry. Also Godard sometimes doing poetry with another voice, sometimes speaking at the same time or slightly off at the same time and doing this insane kind of commentary on the implicit um, – the complicity – of the film industry with the violence that we experience right now, that it, the way in which we orientalize the Mideast, the way in which conflicts have been ginned up in these films is the, the fault of cinema that we are in the place. It is an angry and incisive film and is also beautifully uh, impressionistically like recolored and retooled and he, and he shifts between aspect ratios to sort of keep drawing your distance back away from the film itself to just, oh I'm watching a movie I'm watching these clips I'm watching this thing and it is it is an incredible experience and it doesn't even subtitle everything it subtitles what you got to have hmm. but it doesn't subtitle all the french and honeyland does that yeah yeah, yeah. It doesn't subtitle all the conversations or side side dialogue. Interesting, yeah. interesting. So um, Jean-Luc Godard's, uh, man, Amazing the Image Book is definitely my favorite film of the year. So there you go, dear listener. Always coming with the esoteric picks. That's why we love you, bud. Oh, that's what I do. He had a pretty diverse lineup this year. He did. I he was did. all over the place. Yeah. You you're often are all over the place. Well, I like what I like. Well, I said we all. Yeah. Oh, we. Yeah, that's yeah. true. We all kind of were... Uh, you know, that's part of the fun, right, is trying to, to build your top ten uh, in a way that kind of is expressing a, a collage of what you liked of, of a year in film, right? Mm -hmm. That's yeah. what's fun about these lists. Well, good job, boys. Well, yeah. There it is, you listener. Uh, we love doing this. It's, it's fun. Yeah. It's a good time. Well, we already told you where you can find us, so uh, we're going to tell you about next week. And what's next week? Well, uh, it is Valentine's mm. Day. I love believe. is in the air. Love is in the air. Mm. No better thing than a tale of star-crossed lovers. One, a federal agent. The other... A career criminal. It is Steven Soderbergh's Out of Sight. Mm. Nice. So, yeah, we're going to be checking out that. And, uh, again, tell us what your top tens were uh, via those means of social media that we've already mentioned. And uh, you keep watching, and we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time.